In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In the basement of my parents' house, there is a VHS tape labeled Baptism, May 26, 1996. And in the 21 years since it was first recorded, I've never actually watched through my baptism video, uh, at least not in its entirety. If I did, I would see uh, the testimony that I gave to the good people of Greenfield Baptist Church, my 11-year-old declaration of faith, whatever it was that I said, my baptism, and then afterwards, I believe, stories shared from my parents about my life and character, including sordid details about a shoplifting incident from my childhood. But a year ago, I did take a quick look at one short section of that video. In the reading we just heard from Matthew's Gospel, we heard the Great Commission, Jesus' instructions to go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I have been told that in some places there are evangelical sort of low church churches that have been known not to follow a Trinitarian formula for baptism, but just baptize people in the name of Jesus. And that a baptism like that wouldn't count as a real baptism. In that situation, one would have to be re-baptized or actually baptized. And here's the problem. I have no memory of whether or not my baptism was a Trinitarian baptism. And so on a day last summer, as Joy and I were getting ready to go to bed at my parents' house, I quickly popped in the tape and fast-forwarded to the baptism to make sure. <laughs> Don't worry. I was really baptized. You haven't been receiving communion from a fake priest after all. Everything's going to be all right. I bring this up because today is Trinity Sunday, meaning I am supposed to preach on the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity is the, that thing that as soon as you try and define it or explain it, you are almost certainly going to accidentally stray into heresy. So it's best to leave it to us professionals on this one Sunday so that we can try and define it and accidentally stray into heresy. It's so difficult to describe because it's really a logical consequence of several other things that we believe. It's not something revealed uniquely in Scripture. You'll hear the fringe groups of non-Trinitarians say, well, Trinity's never in the Bible. Neither is youth ministry, and I'm pinning a lot of hopes that that's a good thing. Um, it's a consequence of several other things. We, we have always believed that there is one God, back to Genesis. The church came to believe that Jesus was not just fully man, but also of the same substance of the Father, making him also God. That language comes from the Council of Nicaea in 325. And we believe that the Holy Spirit, quote, with the Father and the Son, is worshipped and glorified. That language comes from the Council of Constantinople in 381. And so we affirm the full divinity of each of these three persons of the Trinity, who are not each other. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son, etc. And we affirm that God is still one. And so we have this thing that we call the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, it could have been a good week to talk about the transcendence of God, about mystery, and about how the questions we ask, like a young child asking their grandfather about doctrine for the first time, eventually hits this wall of why that's just how things are. That things about God eventually go beyond our human understanding. But here's the thing, Mark Galley preached that sermon last week about baptism, so I have to talk about something else. So if you want to hear that, listen to last week's sermon, it's excellent. This morning what I want to dwell on briefly is this, what the Trinity tells us about God, about ourselves, and hopefully encourage us to allow it to draw us into greater devotion, into a greater sense of worship about who God is. In Genesis, God says, let us make mankind in our image. And so from the beginning, 
we affirm that we are made in the image of God, the image of the Trinity. And as there was no time when the Son and the Spirit were not, we recognize that God, in whose image we are created, is relational in God's very nature. One of the beautiful things that you get when you read any theological bit written on Trinitarian theology is the ways in which we try to think about how God relates to God's self, that God is love and that God doesn't need us because God's love already had an object since before time. You'll forgive me for the awkward pronouns this morning. I recognize the Bible and all of church history has used male pronouns for God, but in order to embrace some of this mysterious unknowability, I'm going to be awkward and say things like God and God's self all the time to avoid language that can unintentionally suggest that God is a man as opposed to a woman. I recognize we're not about to change all of our liturgy to say God and parent and child instead of father and son. But for the sake of this sermon, to try and encourage us that we don't know lots of things about God, we're going to keep on using the awkward God as pronoun model. You can yell at me afterwards if this bothers you. This means because we're made in God's image, we too are relational made to love and to be loved, just like God has for all eternity loved and been loved. We recognize this to be true just by observing humanity, that people exist in relationships and in communities and with others. Hermits are an aberration to normal human function. And reflecting on the Trinity shows us why that is, because at God's very nature, God is relational. To be made in God's image is to be made with others, for the sake of others, connected to others, And to live into the imago Dei, the image of God, is to live into this dance of relationships, the giving and taking, the back and forth that make up all of the connections we have with other human beings. And for what it's worth, as a bit of a sidebar, when we limit our understanding of that need for relationship to be simply a a model for marriage, or to a couplet, or even to a nuclear family unit, We lose some of the goodness of relationships and that beautiful tapestry of different kinds of relationships. Friends, godparents, neighbors, fellow parishioners. When we baptized our new brother last week, we all pledged our involvement in his life. While some talk about the spirit in terms of the product of the love of the father and son, calling to mind this sort of image of procreation, the product of the love between a husband and a wife, The Spirit's relationship to the Son and the Father is not exactly like that of a child. And once again, our categories are confounded. Suffice it to say, I think that the Trinity's intrinsically relational nature should make us think more and more about our own intrinsically relational nature and maybe help us think of new categories to whom the love we have to give to others might be given, to give us a sort of broader perspective of that beyond saying the the Spirit's the product of the Father and the Son's love and so marriage is great. The, human, the spectrum of human relationships is much broader and more beautiful than simply marriage. Now, because of God's relational self-sufficiency, meditating on the Trinity gives us new appreciation for other things we believe about what God has done for us. We're relational in nature, and God is relational in nature, but thinking about God's lack of need for us, I think gives us a new appreciation for everything, that, everything else that we believe about God. So, for instance, there's nothing new we can give to God that God is lacking, and yet God chose to create us, to love us, and to unite us to God's self, even though we're this broken and rebellious humanity. In the incarnation, humanity, which did not deserve to be united to God and which God did not need to be united to, gets to be united to God. Jesus redeemed and saved us. The Spirit comforts, empowers, and inspires us to participate 
in the transformational work of recreation. Jesus, fully God, redeems and saves us. The Spirit, fully God. God, as fully God as the mysterious, unknowable, invisible God, chose to make God's self known like that. I cannot stress it enough. Our very existence is not a necessity for God, and yet God chooses and continues to choose to love us with a perfect love that is self-giving, a love that loves for the sake of loving, for the sake of others, with a love that is sacrificial, that chooses emptiness and pain and suffering on behalf of the beloved. Jesus, who is and has always been fully God, chose to walk the way of sorrow and offered his life up for humans who were selfish enough to take it who even now intercedes for us at the throne of the Father. And then God's love chooses not to leave us alone, but to make Jesus known to us in the power of the Spirit, to comfort and to guide. We are made temples of the Holy Spirit. This morning, we'll pray that the Holy Spirit would sanctify ordinary bread and wine. Not ordinary, sorry, bread. It's delicious bread. <laughs> but would, or, would sanctify this bread and this wine to make the mysterious, unknown, invisible perfect God present to us in tangible physical means. We ask that God would bless water and unite us to God's own suffering and death in baptism so that we might be made clean and united to God. The most important part of my baptism video, I dare say, is the very part that I have not yet watched, mostly out of the sheer embarrassment of hearing what 11-year-old me said. The most important parts of that day or how God of the three-in-one was at work in my life already, revealing God's self to me in conviction, in love, in creating, in redemption, in mystery. Now, I believe that sermons are at their best when they're not necessarily education, but exhortation, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable and whatnot. So this morning, I'm going to offer this exhortation that we would all step back and allow ourselves to dwell and ponder on the sort of economics of the Trinity the means and ways in which God pours out God's love for us extravagantly and lavishly in ways we don't deserve and in ways that God didn't need. Now, this isn't a guilt trip, a sort of stop and think and feel this feeling. This isn't we're going to sing this verse one more time and this time really think about the words. I have walked out on worship sets in which leaders have implicitly chastised me for not meaning the words of a song enough. Allowing God to work in us isn't just a sheer force of spiritual willpower. Just think about this true thing a little bit harder until you feel the feeling. But I hope that this transformative process that God wants to do in us happens when we give ourselves to God and let God's love show itself to us and transform us and empower us to love others. I was having a conversation with someone this week that you sort of go away from this emotive Christianity that some of us grew up in and no longer appreciate into a sort of cold cynicism that says, well, those, those foolish evangelicals, they just feel all their feelings and sing the songs over and over again. I've transcended beyond that into my cold, dark cynicism where I can believe objective truths about God. <laughs> and that's, we, we laugh because it's true about us. And so dwelling on this and hoping that God will change our hearts maybe isn't an automatic process, but I pray that it's still a process that happens to us. Let me read again the words of the psalm that we heard today, or that we read today. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor 
You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I do pray that God would catch us up in God's love, informed and inspired by the mystery of the Trinity. We dwell on it not to become theological sticklers, correcting everybody's grammar when they use an egg or a sun metaphor, although theological precision is important. But we reflect on it to begin to understand the vastness of who God is in order to be fully awestruck in what God has done. Having a transcendent God is not is not unique to Christianity. And having a present God is not unique to Christianity. What I think is incredibly unique is a God that is as transcendent as the gods can be in any faith tradition. And yet, God who makes God's self more present than any of the other gods in any other faith tradition. God is love and God's very nature is relational. And that, that God created us in God's image, which means intrinsic to ourselves is loving others and being loved. So we reflect on the Trinity to marvel in that dance between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that perfect dance which needed nothing else that expanded to include us. May God then continue to blow us away by this love and transform us to become more and more fully the bearers of God's image, not loving to fulfill our own needs, not loving because it feels good, but extending sacrificial love that we have been given because it is who we are, because it becomes so intrinsic to who we are, because we've been drawn into the presence of the God to whom love is intrinsic. Amen.